everyone. Today is January 19th, 2012, uh, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Martha Flanders, who's Professor of Neuroscience at the University of Minnesota, where she studies the biological basis of sensory motor integration in motor control. Hi, Martha. Hi. Um, around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. We've got Nicole Witta. Hi. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. First, I wanted to, to just start off with a really broad question about um, these the kind of the debate about modular versus distributed organization of motor control, since um, we've had uh, people visit in the past who've talked to us about it. Um, so modularity is such a pervasive idea in spinal motor systems, and I guess uh, many studies out there, including maybe a, f- a few of yours, have found that uh, a wide range of movements are actually represented by a kind of a small number of, of um, muscle primitives that could, I guess, be contru- construed as modules. Can you talk about that debate a little and maybe describe it in terms of what the benefits for a modular versus a distributed system um, for constru- control strategies would be? And 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 um, do those benefits actually bear out at the biological implementation level since you're really interested in mechanisms? So, um, so just can you weigh in on some of that? Yeah, well, it's really an ongoing debate, and so I, I, um, I, I hope that in future studies they'll be um, uh, really asking these questions you've just asked about what would be the relative be- benefits. Why would it be better to do things in a modular way? Uh, perhaps it's developmentally um, part of the program to, to have certain cell types, and, and we know that, and for circuits to form themselves into modules. Um, most of the evidence, though, even in spinal circuits, comes from an analysis of muscle synergies um, that computationally can show that you can reduce the number of degrees of freedom of description of this system by realizing that there are lots of covariations in the patterns. So not every single motor unit is is acting in a, um, independently, which you know, as a biologist, you know that cells are coupled together. They're not going to all act independently. Um, so if you do the analysis of recorded uh, EMG patterns, so you record from lots of muscles, you have the animal moving, uh, you look at, at those data, and you try to ask, you know, is there a simplification there? And the answer is yes. There, there's not not. Not every signal is independent. There are, are, are patterns there. And analytically, you can break that into a smaller number of important degrees of freedom. But then the question becomes, does that mean that the other degrees of freedom actually the, are not under the neural control? So because there are patterns of, you know, we have coordinated patterns that our our nervous systems are producing, and analytically you can recognize that, oh, I can pick out the important ones that explain most of the variants. But it's another step to say that means that the, the less important for accounting for the variants parts of the components of the, of the reconstruction are not under neural control. That's, that's different. And then it's also different to say that it actually implies a modular architecture where individual um, components of the pattern can be swapped out for one another. So I really don't think the right questions have been asked experimentally yet. Um, as I said, it's, it's, I mean, it's an ongoing area, but I, I think that in biology, um, it's sort of put forward that 
there are modules in the spinal cord. Um, from the perspective of robotics, it, it might, that might be very attractive. Um, but people haven't really asked the questions about are they discrete modules separate from each other and under discrete neural control? Those studies just haven't been done to ask the right questions. So if, if we see that there are some correlations between muscle groups and that, and every time we ask a person to move, though they do it in a correlated way, mm-hmm. it's a little bit different question from asking, do they have to do that? Mm-hmm. So uh, are there tasks where you sort of ask them to pat their head and rub their stomach at the same time and, <laughs> and try to get things that don't normally uh-huh. happen in a fractionated way to happen in a fractionated way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so right, so, so there have been a couple studies that said, okay, if, if, you, if you challenge the movement, whether it's postural control in my lab, we're challenging hand movements by taping fingers together and things like that. So if you really force the system to come up with a different pattern, is the system required to do so using only those modules, reweighting those modules, or is the system flexible enough to actually recompute different components, dif- different In which case the modules would be dynamic entities mm-hmm. that are exactly. just... Exactly, and then it just sort of becomes semantic. But yes. I, actually, the, the, as a biologist, the attractive thing about the module is maybe developmentally we are forming these stable circuits. Uh, so maybe really there are... Maybe there are some modules, but at the same time, from my studies of, of hand muscles, it looks like they really have to be very flexible. It seems to me hands are worst case for modules, yeah. <laughs> because hands can do these fractionated things really well, whereas yeah. trunk movements are yeah. probably more likely to yeah. have lots of Yeah, synergies. so a lot of the muscle synergy studies are in, like, posture, so cat cat legs and um, frog frog legs. But frogs can do a lot of things with their legs, too, with the white reflex and so forth. Um, so so it's, 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 a, it's a little bit, it's, an, it's impressive that you can pick out these patterns of, of correlation, but then it's, it's one step further to really go into the spinal cord and say that this is a discrete unit. There are patterns of lateral inhibition between the different, you know, premotor drives for the separate modules. You'd have to identify that anatomically. So I was going to ask you that question. So is our muscle synergies do line up with these modules? I mean, the, the two the, the two there, terms are synonymous. The, well, because there's no there's consensus no about synergy. What, what there's constitutes no evidence for modules. Okay, yeah, there's modules, and I'm saying that this really hasn't been demonstrated. In some ways, the modules is the kind of extreme language for a synergy, right? Yeah. It it not only talks about things going together, it, yeah. it talks it about them being, it. It being them separate from the other things that go together. Yeah. Right? It like emphasizes that. But this is the this is the same this the same set of of ideas has been uh, in sensory coding for a long time, and it's happening with uh, in cognitive neuroscience. Right. So you have mm-hmm. the question mm-hmm. of the grandmother cell versus distributed representations, mm-hmm. and whether you do that at the kind of people studying single cells levels of things, and then you have whether you have modules of the the different labels of the various areas that you see in fMRI and then mm-hmm. this area and that area and then people say no we're starting the interactions and so what the what you need is something some language like uh, sparse coding mm-hmm. so this is the the coding people have gone in between mm-hmm. this this is hedging your vet yeah so it's it's <laughs> not it's it's not completely not distributed it's not discrete <laughs> right but it's not fully distributed uh-huh. so it's sparse 
Which so can means, never be refuted. Yeah, so, but I do think that <laughs> well, there's a lot of... Because uh, there's benefits to both kinds of strategies. Well, right? sparse coding means something, and, and, and a distributed pattern means something. And then a, a modular pattern is sort of the opposite of distributed. Right, but where's sparse? Sparse coding could be in, in, either, in either architecture. It's in between, right? So I, that's what I think of it. Is So it's like a grandmother cell to something fully distributed. And sparse is there's, there's, lot, there's mm. lots of... Uh, neurons small, that small modules, small numbers of cells, but it doesn't mean that they're separate from each other. For example, for each concept, there's it's not fully distributed across the entire yeah. network. Not everybody's involved, uh, but it's also not localized to one. It's more like separate. a grandmother committee. Yeah, right. right. So the, what you're talking about are the functional units, so they can be uh, anatomically the same structures, but they're functionally organized, but depending on what you're doing. So, for a muscle synergy, is that what you're asking? For, you're saying, what do I mean by a muscle synergy? What is meant by a muscle that's synergy? That's a good question. Well, sure. I think that so, so. I think the motor field is is pretty well united on on what is meant by a muscle synergy, and it's it's a it's a collection, it's a fixed relative weighting of activation across several muscles. So, if you you can have a synergy, if you have five muscles, you can have a synergy where one of them is always going at 80% while, while others are going at 20%, you know, 30%. So that's a pattern. So you take a group, and it's, it's the premotor drive that should be contacting these five motor pools with relative weightings of a fixed amount, and that's what's called a muscle synergy. So now the idea is that you can build up any, any movement, any bigger combination of any motor pattern as a weighted sum of all of those muscle synergies. So you put together lots of overlapping collections. That involve, so say you're only involving these five muscles. You've got different motor drives. Oh, you can't see on the podcast that I'm using my fingers to look like I'm... Uh, you can just network. say what you're doing. <laughs> uh, you're put, so, so the definition is that it's a collection of muscles with an, a fixed relative weighting. But if there were a relatively small number of synergies like that, and they were fixed, that would those would become modules. I mean, that's right. No, that's the question that's is right. just whether those well, things are just happen to have happened, or whether those question, things are permanently engraved in this. Well, the, you're right. There's the question is: Is there really a, a relatively small number of these fixed modules, and are they? Yeah, are they ingrained? Are they have they developed that way? So they become the atoms of movement. Exactly. The functional units. The functional units of motor control are hypothesized to, hypothesized to be the, these motor primitives, the muscle synergies, because you can make any pattern as a weighted sum of those modules. But you could also, in principle, make any pattern out of, uh, out of some kind of collection of it, exactly. of all the possible motor neuron firing patterns that exist. Exactly. And you could have uh, more or fewer of these synergies in your scheme. And I guess the question boils down to, are there, is there a number? Is there, there are 26 a of number? them, right. and it's always 26, and it's right. never 50. Right. right. And so one way to ask that question is you ask whether, computationally you can identify a small number that you can, you can make a weighted combination, and you can account for you know, most, of, most of what's in your data. But then, then you, 
then to go the next step and say that the ones that aren't as important are not under neural control, they're just trial of trial variability, they're just noise. That's a question that really hasn't hasn't been asked in most studies. It's it's you know, okay, if we if we can get four account for eighty percent of the variance, then we're done. We've got a modular structure. That's what yeah. that's what the uh, the assumption often is. So, so they try sorry. Oh, so well, maybe this is going to go a little bit off topic. So if you can go back to Charlie's question if you want to. Um, related to that, so if you have these these functional motor primitives, okay, um, what happens if you learn a new complex motor skill with the same muscles? There's right. There's two possibilities to to do something different. You you could reweight the original components, or you could come up with new components, new primitives. So I think I some of that some of the this some of the functional I think there's two functional importance that uh, ideas that, that people attach to this whole idea and then it goes a little bit to the synergy versus the module kind of thing. So one is the reduction of your parameter space. So if you're gonna do some new thing and you have to specify what all the neural patterns do. How are you going to make something new happen? How are you going to do all that? It's really hard to find. How's the brain going to do that? Yeah, the brain's going to do that, right? It's too hard. You have a slow number of things to start with and you start to reweight them and then it's a much more tractable problem. That's, that's, I think, one aspect and certainly in the motor control that's kind of this is uh, why this idea is so attractive. Is right. we, we think that otherwise it's too hard a problem. Exactly. Right. Right. And it's, it's the degree of freedom problem. It right. goes back to Bernstein. It's a right. classic. But so the, some of the module thing, where the modules come from from other things or the grandmother cell idea where the independence thing, yeah, yeah. there's a different reason to have that. So suppose yeah. that you, you had, you wanted to adjust one type of action, and if things weren't independent, they're going to screw up all the yeah. all the other actions that that those sets of neurons that you're mucking around with. Right. Uh, they're going to mess everything else up, and so you don't have functional. If you don't have functional independence, learning in one area, you have interference. Right. You basically have interference in learning. So if you have independent things, you can have this and learn that task without screwing up the other thing that you've already learned. The problem is, is if everybody's independent, then you have to specify everybody that has to do things. You but, run out of independent modules to do new tasks. But you do get interference, don't you, in motor tasks, learning motor tasks, no motor tasks. That's, that's why the analogies are kind of difficult because, for instance, in vision, we've got modules for color and motion. Well, you know, they're, not, they're, they're, they're separate in and, and some of the other examples you gave, but the muscle synergies really are overlapping to start with. So, mm-hmm. so the, the the module part is the idea that once one premotor at the premotor level you would want to have that independence, which is not as compelling as for some of the other systems. So we just talked a lot about the output level. So I just want to kind of back up a little bit for our listeners and um, so have you kind of lay out introduce the basic problem that the nervous system faces in moving from sensory to force parameters that drive movement. Sort of lay out the the um, the, the whole the problem that you study basically <laughs> <laughs> sensory motor integration yeah, yeah. right so you've got sensory coming in the box and you've got a black box and you've got the motor arrow going arrow going out mm-hmm. so when you go from sensory <clears throat> to motor the, you've got the brain in between right and 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 the the first issue is is if you're trying to make a sensory guided movement 
it's not going to work because sen- sensory signals take too long. You'd have to really go slower. You'd so have to adjust. How long is too long? So, how, how long does it take for, for me to get sensory feedback from my fingers? Two hundred milliseconds for vision and one hundred milliseconds for for uh, sensory speech. So that would put some kind of limit on sensory control. That, that would, would mean be you, you couldn't really do it as an ongoing feedback. Well, control. I could do it at maybe two point five hertz or something yeah, like that. I'm trying to sort of figure out what the frequency. <laughs> what could I do if I was you could, I think you should use efferent's copy. Okay, so let's talk about so efferent's copy. <laughs> so if you use an efferent's copy loop, then you can you can come up you can use a signal that's the expected sensory feedback. You can just make that up and you can keep using it on a moment by moment basis as you move. So it's this internal state indicator, efferent's copy. Yes. Okay. So can you talk to us about this? Because we see we see it in every paper all the time, everywhere. But is it continuously represented? Um, what do we know about how it's implemented? What kind of signal it is? Where we where we could? I mean, how, how do we visualize it? Well, that's really been a big question. Yeah. So so where is efferent's copy? Um, and even what is it? What is it for? Uh, gets it, it gets pretty confusing. Yeah, how it interacts. So with so I, I so I've tried to basically lay it out. Is efferent's copy is everywhere, and uh, it does two things. <laughs> um, it could be used to be compared with sensory feedback, right? So if you're coming up with a prediction of how should that feel, how should it look, once you get a, get after the hundred milliseconds, two hundred milliseconds, when you actually get that sensory input, you can say, was I right? Right. So so, if so that you means you it, have to keep a. I mean, this mechan- the mechanism that's doing the the modeling that's that's simulating the the sensory effect using the motor efferent yes. copy as a as a basis. That thing makes mistakes. It finds about them, mm-hmm. finds out about them a couple hundred milliseconds yes, later. That's right. Well, now it's of course it's too late to fix that mistake, right. but somehow you got to never make that mistake again. That's right. So that circuit has to remember what it's done exactly. for 100 milliseconds or 200 exactly. milliseconds? So that's the part of the efferent's copy that's really helping to, to improve the mapping between sensory and motor. Okay, if, if, if this is what, what I want to do, these are the motor commands I, I'm going to make to do it. Then you have said so the efferent's copy comparison with sensory feedback allows you to evaluate, was that a, right, was that a correct mapping? Uh, and then you can learn. Yes, retrospectively, but then you then you improve the mapping. You learn, for instance, the properties of a tool. You say, oh, that was heavier than I expected. Now, next time I want to move it from here to there, I'm going to use different motor commands. So that's what you use in the sensory comparison, which is too late to do. Um, but another thing you can do with the efferent's copy is you can use it to keep track of, of where you are all the time. What is the what If I put out this motor command, where did that get me? And then, therefore, I can use that that uh, current state. This is my 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 predicted current state. This is where I am. But then I'm going to use that to keep making the next movement. So now it becomes like a negative feedback system. A negative feedback loop will let you continuously guide a movement. So if you're trying to chase with your with finger a visual target that's moving, you've got a signal that says every time I make a, a movement, a motor command, it's going to put me there. That's how far I am away from the visual signal. The visual signal is still moving, but you always have this motor error signal 
So you have an ongoing feedback loop that gets you closer and closer to the target. So even if the target's moving, it's okay because you always are keeping track of how far you are from the target. And that's just the whole point of it. In a millisecond time frame, you can use this continuously to guide the movement. So in a non-inertial system, I wouldn't need sensory feedback. I could easily calculate what's going to happen. So if I'm building yeah. something out of stepping yeah. motors, yeah. I don't need feedback in, right. until I start getting a lot of inertia. But then at right. that point, I... Uh, the solving the equations of motion for the thing yeah. and putting that into the model is hard. So instead, I approximate some equations of motion and then I try to correct them by learning. right, right, right. right. And now that the the so is that the way it really is? I mean, if I look at if I look at the like most inertial movements that I make, are they the ones that? Are most affected by this? I know my yeah. eye movements don't bother much with sensory feedback. Yeah, but, but the problem so it's not just so what so your brain doesn't know whether your stepping motors are doing the same time, same thing every time. They don't know how reliable your peripheral activators are. So suppose some of your motor neurons are turning over, or dying, or flaking out, or you're growing or something. You still need to predict what you're doing, even if there's no inertia. Right, even if they they didn't have to do anything, you still have to predict where it's going because they're changing all the time. You have to tell your eyes that. Yeah. So, 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 so don't you can't that. see, you can't see because you can only hear me. But when Charlie started saying that, I got so excited because he was making the argument that if you were trying to control a movement that had, you know, where the the effector, the thing you're trying to move, has no inertia, then you could just do a totally open loop. You wouldn't need this closed loop feedback system to keep it going. Well, guess what? Even though for eye movements, there's very little inertia to worry about, and you in principle could do an open loop, your brain still implements that control with a feedback system. And this has been shown by you know years and years of beautiful experiments in the ocular motor system, recording from different areas of the brain, doing perturbation of a saccade mid-flight. You perturb a, a saccade, so the eye is moving really fast. You do, give a little stimulation to spirit clicculus, the eye goes off track, Guess what? It still gets back on target. So, so from all of these, you know, recordings and especially these perturbation studies, you see that even in ocular motor control for a very fast, so so-called ballistic movement, too fast to be made without sensory feedback, right? Ballistic, mm -hmm. it still uses this internal feedback loop to guide even a fast so movement you, like that. So, when you say the internal feedback loop, you are talking about the efferent's copy loop, yeah. which is, yeah. which is exactly. in some sense open loop. I mean, if I was building stepper motors, and I knew I had sent sig certain signals to the motor, then I would say, okay, then I can trust that the motor made that movement. Yeah. But the whole point of, of real sensory feedback, like proprioceptive feedback, is that I don't really trust that my effector is the same as it was last time I did it. Well, when, I, when I'm saying a feedback loop, an internal feedback loop, what I mean is that what the input is the motor error. It's the different, and it works perfectly to talk about this for the retina. So you've got, you've got a, a flash of light in, in the per peripheral retina, and you want to move your fovea onto that target, right? And you keep moving your eye until that point of light gets onto your fovea, right? So meanwhile, you're always keeping track of how far is my fovea from the target. And as you move, that air signal, the difference between where, where my eye should be you know, the distance between the point on the peripheral retina and the fovea, that's the air signal. But as you move, that signal diminishes it. As you get closer and closer and closer, you're there. So in ocular motor control, 
that's the way the system runs. It keeps track of how far am I, how far am I, how so far I think, am I. Uh, my, the thing that's confusing me here is it, it seems to me in your scheme there are two error signals. One of them is the error signal between where I want to be and where my simulation of my, of my uh, physical yeah. plant is yeah, telling me where right. I am. And then there's a second error one, and that is where do I want to be and where am I actually. So in the case of eye movements... No, those it, are both the same. Oh, you, you agreed with that, but I didn't. Those uh, are both the same. The one, the one is efference copied through an internal model, and the second one is actually retina... Uh, the, the difference between the efference copy, right? You're sorry. So, so on, your, on your retina, points. you can have both pieces of information uh, visually, right? On on the retina, you both are visual. You can compare the the point where it is on the uh, retina, how far it is from the fovea. You have that signal. But in other movements, you can still make the analogy that that what you need to control the movement is the difference between my motor state where I am now and the desired state. When uh, I get there, but there I, I, I hate to keep saying this, but there are two where I am now. There are one that I calculated and one that's real. Right. So and and you, we're talking about the one that we calculate. How do you know that? What? How does your system sense the one that's real? Proprioception. That vision. takes too long. Well, so, it doesn't take too long. I mean, if I make a saccade to the wrong yeah. place. It is vision that tells me yeah. I made it to the wrong place, and I make another yeah. saccade to correct yeah. it. Okay, so now I'm sorry I brought up the, the uh, eye movement <laughs> analogy, because in that case, that you can get both signals uh, visually on the retina. I, I think I'm stuck on the same point, and I'm not clear exactly what information the efferent copy is contributing uh, how is it checking that it's in the right place if it's so, not getting feedback from the system? It is. So it is, there, there are two signals that, are, that, if you go back to Charlie, you do have two copies of the same kind of information, your internal predicted copy of where you are, and then your actual sensory feedback of where you are, actually where you were, because it takes a while, right? So those two things are there, except that they are there at different times. One, your prediction comes first, mm -hmm. and then you get some information about what actually happened later, okay? So to guide movement, it would be great to use the prediction if it was pretty good. So what you do is your the idea is that your motor control system uses the efference copy, right? But somehow you have to generate an efference copy that has to be transformed from your actual motor command to what's going to happen. It has to predict what sensory thing is going to happen, right? So there's another system that's converting your motor command into a sensory prediction, and that could be wrong. And so you use this signal that comes in later to fix that, right? So you're fixing that system, um, and then you use it, uh, that system, but you're using that system in the motor command. So, so what happens, like in bird song, is like you deafen a bird, okay? So you're no longer correcting your efference copy, I, this is the idea, right? But you're pretty good for a while because you just use it. It's not being corrected and something. But something goes wrong. It starts to get, your, say your efference copy goes wrong. Uh, and it starts to predict the wrong thing, and you start correcting things that aren't wrong. Then you start messing up, right? Because it's your efference copy system that's going wrong, and your motor system is still doing the right thing. It's just getting the wrong signal to do the right thing, and it gets all messed up. So they're kind of different systems that may be in different places. That are so it has to constantly be learning how to simulate the exactly. sensory exactly. signal that it thinks it's going to get 200 milliseconds from now or whatever. Right. If there's a bad credit assignment... Uh, problem in that little learning module. I guess it's not the topic of our discussion, but that delay is, is bad news for the designer of that 
little gadget that has to learn that. So is this what you would see when you use, for example, the distortion lenses and you remap your motor, Mm -hmm. uh, your three-dimensional motor space, (laughs) and you get online um, correction because you think you overshoot or you... Right, and then on the next trial you do better. So you've, you've, you've remapped you your effort. You've remapped, yeah. But your your sens- your sensory information is still. This, is it, you're, you have a, a contradiction between the sensory and the afferent. Is that what's happening? Right. So mm-hmm. so uh, in that case, what you need to do is adjust the motor commands so that it it looks right. So over a few trials, you're going to change the mapping between how I want it to look and what kind of forces do I need to make it look better. So, and the cool thing is that often in those cases, instead of remapping your efference copy, you learn a new efference copy command based on context. Or the old one's still there, and then if yeah. you change the context, yeah. and you then you can flip back, take or off, or, take off the glasses or don't move in some, or give it, even yeah. you can actually train yourself to have different context motor cues. So you can yeah. turn one on, and I know I'm in this situation where I have this kind of mapping, and I can turn a different cue on, and I know a different one, and I can remap it. So and, and like move hand and arm movements, how many different ones of those can you have? I've heard this rumor that it's really just one. Once you've adapted to the glasses and you take the glasses off, then you keep moving as if you had the glasses on until you unlearn it. And then well, you, you, you've touched on another big uh, issue in motor control. It's it's um, the idea is you may have multiple internal models, like one for each tool you use. You have a different model for that. And then the question is, is that really a different model, or is there some modularity there? So you could so so you could like classify different tools and say, oh well, I, this one's a little heavier than I expected. I don't, I don't know. I don't need a whole new model. I'm just, so that's you know that's an open question. Again, like the modularity. You could you could do those experiments to see if you. Have but the that. notion that you can only learn one dynamics is is got to be wrong because oh, no. you can, you can definitely one. learn to to balance a hat on a cane, uh-huh. and then the next minute you can pick up a, a five pound hammer and still operate. Right, there. but so so as as I'm uh, drinking this bottle of water and it's getting lighter, though I'm probably just making adjustments to its model. Uh-huh. I'm not uh, uh, invoking a different model every time I pick it up. So, so you know, so one of one of an ongoing um, lines of investigation are trying to sort of parameterize how do you learn this, the, these different models, you know, and, and it, it, to to what extent do you need need some modularity to, to switch over? Is there modularity in that system? I had a related question with some of your earlier work and your uh, work with sign language. So, in the you. Um, the t- you have done some studies with typing and playing the piano where there wasn't um, any indication of prediction of the next in- sequence of movements. And then you did uh, sign language and showed that there was a lot of co-articulation of movements from one, one letter to the next in the sign. Um, and I'm wondering why, where's the discrepancy between the two findings? And is it just the degree of complexity in the joint angles that allows you to see more co-articulation, more movement change, or is it something fundamentally different about the type of motor movements that you're doing? Yeah, the thing about sign language is that it's um, 
it's all internal states of the hand. So you go from one hand shape to another hand shape. And there's some flexibility. You might, you might think, so our, our initial hypothesis is that you, you would need to learn and think about sign language, fingerspelling, a series of letters. You would really need to think about each letter as your target posture and try to get to it. Um, just like for a, key, for a keyboard, you definitely have, you have to hit that key. You know, you have an external target, uh, a place in space, so you have to map uh, movement of your finger to a key on a typing keyboard or a piano key. You know, there's that, there's that definite external goal. Um, so in sign language, we thought maybe that, that correct hand shape would be a, a set goal. I mean, you really have to hit it, like with the key, you really have to hit it or else it's going to be a mistake. Um, but with the hand... It's, it's more flexible. You don't really have to get exactly the same shape for it to be communicated to the person watching you spell. Since there's some flexibility there, it looks like the motor system's taken advantage of that and you know, try to you know, blend together the, ladder, the letters. We initially, when we started the study, we thought, well, maybe these sequential tasks are difficult, so the brain to plan them and organize them would need to do, you know, some kind, something simple. Always make the same. Always spell one letter in exactly a stereotypical way. Um, so we thought that, and then what we found from the study was that there's really a lot of flexibility in uh, uh, how far ahead you can plan the co-articulation, the kind of co-articulation that you see in the speech. Um, articulatory muscles uh, it has an, a, an amazing degree of co-articulation blending together, but speech is so sophisticated and well learned with areas of the you know brain really devoted to that. Um, so we weren't sure that the skeletal motor system could be so sophisticated. So you, you mean flexibility is coming from the perceiver's categorical perception, the, the ability to perceive different right. things as the same. Right. Right. So, so in, even in a key bar task, you, you could hit the key from a different direction and maybe not make an error. So, so maybe there's something fundamental in that it's an external target, a mapping from, from an intrinsic movement of my body to an external visual target. And in finger spelling, it's all intrinsic. Um, but so that's one possibility. But another possibility is that there's actually uh, quite a bit of uh, flex, fle um, flexibility in what that target is. Mm -hmm. So you can you can make any letter shape in a ver various ways mm -hmm. and still be understood. So did you try to did you try to assess that? Well, what we did is we we assessed the um, when I showed examples of of different fingers that were sort of breaking energetically efficient rules and doing things in a completely different flexible way. Um, what we did was we evaluated the reason for that. The reason for breaking the energetic efficiency was to communicate. Um, I guess your, your question was actually, did, did, well, did so how we do you ask know? how flexible can you be? We didn't, we didn't do a study where we asked, could, could you be understood? Could, could, well, how is it still taught? It's is it with a mirror feedback or like how how is it taught to people? Like when you same as any other language, you start in in words with words, and so they don't actually but sit there and you don't see your own. You don't actually you don't yeah, use any visual feedback from yourself to the person that you're seeing. Yeah. So well, actually, so there's two interesting alphabet first, and then well, we don't do it in in regular speech the way we talk. No, like but that's because I don't have to say. 
the actual letters of the word. No, but it's the same thing. They do it in you, don't, you don't say A, you say ah. So, so that's what I was going to kind of ask was, is there any pause? When you reach a particular letter, do you pause for a second and then go to the next, or is it one so, continuous? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I showed a trace in my talk, and we have a trace in the paper where if you look at the velocity profiles, they definitely have low points, so you can segment the data. It's very nice, but they're actually more more of a reversal than a, than a pause, it turns uh-huh. like. So velocity changes direction and goes through zero. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's a couple of interesting things, though, that you have to take into account when you're talking about, about um, speech and sign language, is that you have context. And so if you actually take, I don't know about, about sign language, and this would be an interesting question to do it with segments of sign language, but they've done this with speech segments, where if you take a, a continuous segment of speech and cut out a piece, it's uh, depending on the amount of context preceding it, yeah. oftentimes the segment of speech is unintel- unintelligible. Yeah. And so if you took the same thing in sign language and cut out the C, you may not be able to interpret it very well as a C because you're it's so co-articulated, depending on, uh-huh. on the amount of uh-huh. co-articulation. So there's an, there's that degree that there's another level of flexibility that that is allowed in the system that you're using context to understand what it is that you're perceiving. So did you just just say if you cut out a seg a, few a segment phonemes, then you cannot understand? That's right. So there's sometimes there's no filling in. Well, because it's so co-articulated, depending on the segment, sometimes they're so co-articulated that in isolation you can't make out ba because uh, or bad the word bad oh, okay. because it's so co-articulated oh, that you can't really make sense of what it says outside of the context. So if you just actually clip the sound, uh, the sound wave. Um, the, oh, the, but if you clip it, can you understand the word without it? Oh, the other way, yes. The fill yes, in okay. phone. No, no. I mean the segment that you stick that you cut out. Right. So if you cut if you cut out the C in the sign language in a, in a highly articulated yeah, hand, yeah, hand, yeah, hand yeah. sign, you may have the same phenomenon yeah. that it's dependent yeah. on, on context and then your ability exactly. to categorically perceive that. So those are two levels of flexibility. It sort of just means that the data rate is real slow. And so you, have, you end up integrating over a big, long period of time to figure out the meaning instead of using the individual pieces. But we're talking, some of this, this is, is, is a distinction some between language this is yours was not a linguistic task, right? Spelling. It's like saying, can you have someone not say a word? It's say it's spell the word, you know, uh-huh. uh, C A T. It's not uh-huh. saying cat. It's saying C A T. Saying they're different things. Uh-huh. And so what you're doing is not a, si- a sign language thing. Where you a lot of I agree. That's what confused me about the way it's learned, because it seems like if I had to spell every word that I learned to speak. I would have to learn to spell before I could speak. Yeah, but they don't. They don't spell every word. Yeah. They only spell the word. They only spell the words that they don't, they don't have. So they sign. learned a bunch of movements in their head, and then they're told later that this movement meant this letter, and this movement meant that letter. Mm-hmm. And they no, actually no, 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 no. So sign language. Yeah, I'm confused about what you're you saying. You have a sign. You have a sign for a word. You don't have a sign for letters. Uh-huh. I mean, you have them both, just like we do. But when you're learning to. S- to make I, I word a, by letter. I took a class. So, so basically, you, you learn <laughs> okay. different gestures, which are the signs. Uh, what I wanted to say was that when I took the class, I never looked in the mirror. We just we just made uh, these gestures and well, watched each other. I'm not confused about <laughs> sign language having gestures that are not letters. I understand that this is not spelling anything. <laughs> <laughs> see that guy. <laughs> uh, but uh, but when the words are being spelled. The only way to do that is to know the letters and That's to right. spell them. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, great. Just like, yeah. Yeah. But I imagine that if you spell them uh, spoken, you would also have co-articulation. If I said, if I said, spell out the word elephant, you wouldn't say yeah. e. 
L. Yeah. You know, you'd, yeah. you'd yeah. co-articulate yeah. the sounds yeah. just as you would spelling them out with your yes. hand. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the, here's the question that I had, because you could, one way to assess whether, not whether it's perceptually uh, salient, but you could have uh, um, your signers sign in isolation a whole bunch of examples of, of C, Mm -hmm. uh, and then see which configurations are most preserved in terms of the motor things of the distribution of C's that they make. Mm -hmm. uh, Presumably, this, this is a hypothesis, that the things that are most preserved are the ones that are most salient for perception. Uh, and then you would have an independent thing to say, presumably those would be the ones that are least susceptible to co-articulation, or they may be actually static for a while, even if you're summed uh, velocities of everything else, it's because everything else is kind of moving in and out. But the ones that are really important get there first and leave there last. Um, and then the thing that's salient is actually a pause for a little bit. And it's just the other stuff that's not, that's, that's late and gets there late and leaves there late. Yeah. I, I, I don't so, know. So what we did along those lines is we were trying to interpret the different kinds of co-articulation we saw. So so I, it, it just looked like one type of co-articulation was pre-placement uh, to conserve energy, and another type of co-articulation actually resulted in a very fast movement from from one from the C to the vowel or whatever. Um, so we, we did an analysis, and we didn't have human observers say, do you do you need that fast movement to see that the what letters coming up? Instead, we just uh, did the computation and we said which joint if we do if we do subsets of joint angles, and computationally can we discriminate what the letter was? So which joint angles are the most important computationally for discrimination of different letters? So you can tell the difference mm -hmm. between an I and an A or whatever. And computationally, it would come back and it would say that uh, particular joint angles were more important. Subsets involving particular joint angles were the ones that discriminated best. And those happened to map up, line up real well with the ones that were showing the emphasis, fast movement patterns. And the ones that were showing the, the lazy, energetically efficient pre-placement, if you're not important, go ahead and get ready for the next one. Um, those were the ones that weren't as important in distinguishing between letter shapes. So this is interesting from the sign language literature perspective because um, <clears throat> there's accent in, in, uh, and, and sort of sloppy language like we have in, in you know, accents in, in spoken languages. And I wonder if that it comes from inappropriate use of the, you know, like you're getting to the same shape, yeah. but you're not getting uh -huh. there in the right way. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I wonder if that has something uh -huh. to do uh -huh. with, that'd be Can interesting. Can someone study that? Um, you have to ask Karen Emery because she's the expert in it, but I don't, I don't know. Uh -huh. So it'd be slurry, sir, yeah. Southern, yeah, like, like the southern signers would go yeah. use that. Uh, it's just the, a draw. The, uh, yeah, oh, New Jersey signers like, would go so fast, nobody could understand what they're saying. There might be something to that. It seems like it makes sense. Okay, well, I think we're running a little long on this one. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us, Martha Flanders. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.